Good morning, Matt. Um, John DeVries from Black Rock Mining. Uh, we're a Tanzanian graphite developer, and I use that word very carefully because we've gone from a, a graphite explorer to being a graphite developer, and it's particularly uh, a fantastic time to be developing a world-class graphite project as the EV revolution really moves from being a, a rhetoric to, to something real. You can walk into many automotive showrooms today and buy an EV, and we just hope in a not too distant future that EV has some of our concentrators, some of our graphite in it, and we take a very significant role in not only advancing Africa, but also decarbonising the planet. It's a pretty good reason to get out of bed most days. It is. And you've got out of bed and joined us here in Cape Town. What are you over here for? Well, as I said, we're, we're pre-development. So what we're trying to do now is front-end load the financing process. Right. Um, last week, we completed a $25 million raise on That's the nice. ASX, which has filled our treasury and allowed us to really start the early works program um, and really establish a platform from which we can come out in the second half of this year and, and move into construction at Mahangi. Right. So we'll get into the, the finance and, and what you're going to be doing with you know, use cases, etc. Um, in a sec. Let's start with you. Because the first time we've met, we've spoken, yeah. right? And I've really enjoyed the conversation we had before the camera started rolling. Um, tell us a bit about your background. As you can tell by the hair colour, I've been around a little bit. Um, <laughs> 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I started in Cambelda, mining yeah. nickel back mm -hmm. in the early 80s. And I think it's ironic that uh, I look at the nickel industry then, which is stainless steel. The nickel industry today is stainless steel and EVs. Um, in my time, I've been around about 40% of my time is in offshore projects, supervising mm -hmm. former Soviet Union, Pacific, right, and building right. projects in Africa. Yeah. So what I'm able to do now is to, to bring together 40 years of uh, things I've learned and 40 th years of things I don't want to do again mm -hmm. and put it together at Mahengi. It's been a, an honour to really take a project that is a, a world-class asset yeah. at expiration stage and put together our IP that we've learnt over the time and, and put together a really well-founded, well-reasoned um, resource development strategy. Well, let's, let's help people perhaps new to this, looking in from the, coming from the tech space or, or, or elsewhere, perhaps don't quite understand the vocabulary. So graphite, the space has evolved. And I think you told me before we started, you know, even in the last five years, it's significantly different. So. If you were to get in a time machine and go back a few years and talk about graphite, you'd always be talking about graphite and steel mills because the primary yeah. demand for graphite was handling hot metal, be it either as a refractory lining for a steel mill or sitting in foundry sands. What we've seen is, is the world has moved into this EV alternative energy space. Mm. The need for energy storage has really pulled out a new rhetoric around graphite. Mm. And, and the, 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 the highest growth rate at the moment is coming out of that EV storage. Poses a few problems for the sector is firstly, what was a good refractory may not necessarily make a very good um, battery mineral feed. So we're in a, in a world where we're going back now and trying to understand what is the right graphite to mine and mm -hmm. where does that graphite come from? That's interesting because it used to be as simple as, you know, small flake, large flake, jumbo flake, that's all I needed to know. And maybe, a, you know, coming under a little bit of pressure from the synthetic uh, graphite as well. That's That was all it was about. So what you're saying in terms of the different types of graphite mines or operations out there, they've had to rethink what it is that they're going after? Certainly. Um, so if I start off maybe at the small flake 
Yeah, small flake. If you think about a, a typical graphite mine, it's a it's a crush grind float, and then we go into an attritioning process. We attrition a process. You can imagine a flake of graphite; it's intercalated. Yeah. And what you have to do is break apart that flake of graphite to get rid of the intercalations, right. so you can get to something that's saleable, ninety-five yeah. percent. The advantage we have at Mahingi, by the way, is very little intercalations means we don't have to do much breaking of the graphite flake. Okay. But if you're in a, a battery manufacturer, the chemistry of those intercalations matter a lot. So this is where people are now starting to go back and say, well, what works in refractory doesn't necessarily work in, in the energy industry, and really starting to look at alternative feedstocks. And I think the nuance overlay on that is that the traditional graphite industry is Chinese-owned. Chinese dominate mm -hmm. about 70% of the global volume, and that's simply a function of the Chinese steel industry. Mm -hmm. As we start to look at you know, res uh, you know, resource security and supply chain integrity, people are now looking at, well, are we happy with China owning 70% of a critical material associated with the energy transition. Well, that, that's, a, that's a big topic was affecting you know, a few other commodities um, as well as a sort of jurisdictional risk, very prevalent at the moment. Let me come back to the, this intercalation. Did you know what you had when you first picked up the asset or has time and a change in the market been your friend? We learned fairly early we had a, a unique block of rock. Yeah. Um, and it really talked to a couple of things we did differently in the development strategy of the project. Yeah. Um, so one thing we did very early on is we went and did a lot of battery tests. We did those battery tests back in 2017, 2018. Right. And in those tests that indicated our material performed a lot better. Right. And uh, when we looked under the scanning electron microscope, um, we kind of had lumps of graphite as opposed to something that looked like a club sandwich. So it gave us a pretty good hint we we're onto something something yeah. special. What we then did is is step back and say, well, what's the right development strategy for the project? Right. Um, and, and there's really a couple alternatives here, but the, the, the strategy we hit upon was developing a, a module, a modular approach, so mm -hmm. it was easy to execute. But the module was sized so that it was big enough to be investable, small enough to be fungible, right. so we're not trying to overreach. And critically at that point in time, the amount of product we put out wouldn't damage any of our price points. So a lot of work went into that. Once we'd worked that bit out, we then transitioned to a very, very intensive qualification phase. Yeah. And that took us four years. So this bit's really interesting to me because that's the smarts. You, you say, right, we need to kind of show a kind of route to market and maybe earlier revenue right? But without damaging the potential scale of this operation and people's perception of what it is that we are. So we might look too small if we go early, but at the same time, we've proved a lot of things to a lot of people. And is that, is that how you attracted POSCO on board? POSCO came, POSCO came on board as part of the qualification strategy. Right. So what we did early on is, is we're trying to, to get our flow sheet right. Yeah. We ran a 90-ton pilot plant in China. At that point, that pilot plant was an order of magnitude larger than anybody else's. Right. And it was simply done because we didn't know a lot about graphite. The Western world doesn't know a lot about graphite. Yeah. And it actually took us five different circuit configurations to get it right. Right. Uh, we're able to put concentrate out to a number of people. Yeah. 
Um, and how, Oscar, how many typically do you put these out to? Uh, we put it out to 29 different companies. Right, okay. Um, and we had seven come back and say, let's talk. Let's t- um, all South Korean? No, 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 no. One South Korean, six Chinese. Ah. Oh, sorry, and one Japanese. Okay. Uh, but not a lot happening in the West, as you say. I mean, it reinforces your point. The, the, the West has become, at that point in time, the West was content to allow China to be the factory of the world. I think that yeah. that dialogue's moved on. Yeah. But at that point in time, and, and this is where the supply chain issue sits at the moment, is that China being the manufacturing centre of the world mm. consumes most of the raw materials. So if you mm. are going to work in this space, you have to look, work with Ch- Team China. But we've seen, we've seen a few, if we take other commodities and the rare earths, for instance, right? There's been this sort of pushback there from you know, various countries about or, you know, mineral security or critical minerals, less, however you want to frame it. Um, but also some pushback with the way that China was manufacturing these rare earths in terms of there's a little bit of nimbyism here around the world, around the world with mining at the moment. Perhaps we should avoid that topic. But it, it, the way that China was doing the, the environmental damage that was being done with, with rare earths, was it the same in terms of um, what you're seeing with, with, with graphite? People concerned about the way that graphite has been produced? There, there's two layers in which that occurs in China. Firstly, the raw graphite production yeah. uh, and, 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 and the mines aren't world-class, call a spade a spade. Yeah. They're, they're not world-class in, 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 in the way they manage their externalities, their, their community footprint, their environmental footprint. Yeah. So that was part one, but also China owning you know, effectively three-quarters of the raw materials supply. The second issue is, is more of a global issue. Mm. And, and when you make your spherical purified graphite, which mm. is the anode precursor, mm. the, the one route that works at scale at the moment is the hydrofluoric acid route which is dominated with China and China does that uh, holds that space for a couple of reasons you need to think of this not so much as a a spherical purified graphite industry it's a vertically integrated supply chain Mm. so in in a typical SPG plant in China three tons of concentrate go in you produce one ton of precursor anode precursor you produce two tonnes of dust. That dust is used as recarburising feed in a steel mill. Right. So hence POSCO are interested in... Because yeah, I was trying to work out, you know, again, for the, for, the, for the people who are not aware of all of this, you know, POSCO, South Korean steel manufacturer, is, no, is that what they do? No, no. It's a different story how POSCO got into okay. this one. But, you know, if you think about the SPG story, three tons in, two tons of dust that go to a steel mill. Yeah. So for this industry to be viable, you need a steel mill in the yeah. backyard. Yeah. You need hydrofluoric acid okay. to, to purify the, the HF, uh, the SPG. Uh, so typically that comes out of vertically integrated chemistry, chemical industries or pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So when you go to Shandong province and we go to, you know, new materials and people like that, um, you know, there's a steel mill down the road and there's a, a pharmaceutical plant oh, gotcha. across the road. Right. And that's why China's sat in this space with this HF route. Got it. Now, there's a, there, at the moment, there's a bit of an arms race to find out, is there an alternative route? And there's a lot of people working in this space. Now, critical to our strategy is going, we're better miners than we are chemists. Yeah. So we stay upstream and we have a relationship with POSCO on the downstream side. Got it. Okay. So it's and just... And is that the model going forward, as far as you're concerned? Well... Uh, 
the fundamental business model we go is with our modular approach is we build a module that's not too big mm -hmm. and not too small. Mm -hmm. Um, and that produces us, you know, an EBITDA of 40 or $50 million a okay. year. Yeah. From that, we buy a second module, a third module, okay. and a fourth module. And the nuance here is because Mahengi is the fourth largest resource on the planet and has the biggest measured resource, having qualified module one, Module two can come on at the rate I can build it. I don't have to qualify module two. Mm. I don't have to qualify module Got three. It. I don't have yeah. to qualify module four. We can react to market signals very quickly. Smart. That's why we put the effort into getting module one qualified. Okay, so let's talk about where you're at today with this, because you, 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 you brought this, you're at the, like in the final few yards of of this project, right? You've kind of been, you've got your environmentals in place, you've got your license uh, in place. You've got, well, a social license. Let's talk about that because Tanzania, a beautiful country, beautiful people. Um, done business there myself. Um, they must be pretty excited about what you're trying to do there. Tanzania um, has gone from being really challenging to really quite friendly, you know? mm. and um, you know, certainly we. We arrived there, I arrived there in, in, in 2017, and it changed from a good environment to a challenging environment fairly quickly. Mm. We realised we're sitting on a world-class resource, and you don't walk away from a world-class resource, so it's a matter of buttoning down and pushing through. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, probably a testament to, to our endurance is I, I went over to Tanzania in August last year, Mm. knowing I was unable to return to Australia. I only got home uh, on the 5th of March this year. Um, and had to spend four and a half months in Tanzania yeah. working through the resolution yeah. to that free-carried interest because without resolving that free-carried interest, we were unable to take the project forward. Right. And what did that end up looking like? Um, <coughs> it, it is, ironically, the same economics we forecast in the DFS back in 2018, 2019. Okay. Um, so the government has a 16% dividend participation, right? That's in their free carried interest. And, you know, this gets back to the whole ESG argument about, you know, what's ethical and what's right. Um, the way it balances in hands, you know, 30% tax rate, 4% royalty, 16% mm -hmm. free carried interest. Effectively, the nation has a 50% interest in the project economics. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that mean for us? Look, at a very high level, it means Tanzania wants the same things we want. Mm -hmm. And that is Tanzania wants to get the project built. Yeah. Tanzania wants to see the jobs created. Tanzania wants to see the foreign exchange coming into the country. So I think what it's done at a, at a, at a high level is produced a sort of alignment that yeah. we'd like to have. Well, I think that's fantastic. I think it's very topical at the moment. And we've, we've seen lots of conversations, proposals in South America, which people are a bit uncomfortable with. But I think Africa has always been a good place to mine, good, good place to do business. It's slightly easier, possibly, than some northern, some Western jurisdictions, one could argue. And I think people need to appreciate that. Uh, what I like about Tanzania um, is there is this concept of of British law mm. that sits there, and the law is the law, and, and people will apply the law. You know, some mining law here, you're talking just ge general law. General law, know, yeah, right. It gets a bit clunky at times, yeah. but, but fundamentally, the law is the law. 
So compared to a lot of other jurisdictions I've worked in, I call Tanzania Africa light. Yeah, yeah, um, that's fair. And you know, certainly compared to some jurisdictions I've worked in Australia or in North America, I, I know where I'd be easier to work in, and that's Tanzania at any day. You know, you know, the worst thing you'd be is British Columbia with the Copper Gold Project, it'll take you 15 years to get the environmental permit. Um, we know we can do that in Tanzania in 12 months. Yeah, and that's a, like I, said, I think it's a very enabling government. The attitude of the government is, is 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 fantastic in terms of they want this foreign direct investment. They want they do want the jobs, and but you've still got to do things the right way. You've got to go through a process. There's no shortcuts here. Uh, look, I think anybody who's responsible in business wants to look back and say I did good, yeah. not I cut corners. Yeah, um, and that's really what motivates us at the end of the day. We want to sit back and know we've done the right things right. Right. Um, and we've created opportunities for our shareholders. We've created opportunity for our stakeholders in country as well. Well, let's look at that. Okay, so you're doing good because you want to do things the right way. It's your, your reputation, your brand. You're doing things the right things for the country and the people people there. But for your shareholders too, the economics stack up. So you, I saw the IRR was, you know, pretty, pretty punchy. Pretty staggering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, that gets back to... Yeah, you know, a couple of different strategies about how you go back and, and, and develop a project. Um, I go back to the modular approach mm -hmm. where we get module one up and going, we put in the infrastructure, we train everybody to operate module one, mm -hmm. and we put in module two, which is exactly the same as module one, mm -hmm. and module three, and then module four, all of which gain us economies of scale. So for want of a better word, this is putting on a building an airline out of A320s one at a time as opposed to buying one big A380. Yeah. Um, and it really gets back to letting us be in charge of when we add capacity and how we add capacity. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the, about the market and you know um, where this going. Obviously, commodity prices generally across the board are quite good at the moment. Um, for graphite, is it sustainable? What, what does that supply demand deficit look like going forward? What's the expectations? And also, if you can bring in the synthetic component here, because you know it was always synthetic was on the rise, and then it kind of overtook natural, and now natural is making a comeback. So, so what's happening there? So in graphite, you need to think of, you know, we produce five products that go into three distinct markets. The very large material, which we call plus 32 mesh, gets called jumbo, super yeah. jumbo. Um, that goes into a foils market, mm. and, and foils are thermal management um, film, and, and if you buy yourself a mobile phone, um, I think about the foil sitting in that as opposed to the graphite and battery, because mm. the foil protects the screen from, from th heat damage, so 100-inch TVs get me excited, there's a lot of graphite in there. Um, there's the, the mid-size, which get called large, which is typically plus 50, plus 80 mesh, um, that material there will go into expandables. So we're mm. talking about fire suppressants, door seals, gaskets, therm again, um, thermal management. Mm. Um, and again, that's a burgeoning market. This is a market that's screaming for supply. And then there's the fines, which goes into traditional refractories and increasingly EV space. Mm -hmm. When you build an EV battery, you design it for uh, a certain performance level. Mm. So natural flake will have a higher charge. Okay. Synthetic charges faster. So what you're trying to do is to dial 
Got it. the ratio. Now, the other thing that you're finding is synthetic tends to be more homogenous than natural. Why? Because the Chinese industry, which is a dominant supply, is dominated by a series of small mines and you're trying to blend the problem away. Right. The solution is large homogenous mines such as Mahengi. That's the, the blending, but I hadn't really thought of that. The, yeah. the, the second nuance on that is the arms race in the cathode chemistry, mm. where we're going from LFP, which is you know, cheap and cheerful, through to the higher performance NCM batteries. And, and you know, there's a very significant cost difference between an LFP battery and an NCM battery. In reflect of that, you also need to adjust your anode chemistry. And it's much easier to adjust the chemistry in a natural flake element of that anode because you can intercalate silica and mm -hmm. other elements mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. to enhance that performance. So we're seeing that combination of cost at the top end of high battery performance is driving people into the anode space to review the anode chemistry yeah. and see what they can do. And that's really only possible when you're dealing with a, a homogenous natural flame. Right, right. John's laws of batteries there for every cathode, there's an equal and opposite anode. So we're in that space, which is good. Not bad. Let's talk money. Uh, you raised 25 million bucks uh, recently. You're in the sort of engineering phase of this. It's, I want to kind of bring, bring it back to what are investors looking forward to, right? Relatively low capex for phase, phase one. Um, but you still need to get that in place, right? You, you, you need to get this debt. You refer, referenced earlier, it's slightly harder to kind of get the debt until you've got a few things in place. So yeah. where so, are you? So the, the, the strategy, and this gets back to some decisions we made four years ago about going down the pre-qualification route. Mm. So if you go down the pre-qualification route, um, you can attract uh, an anode producer, and, and, and in our case, we've got POSCO standing in. POSCO now owns 13% of the company. Yep. Um, and they're standing in there for a life of mine offtake from Module 1. Um, we do have interest in Module 2 already. Um, and POSCO will stand in the market for 10 So is that 100% of life of mine? Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's, and there's no competition. Do you think you've got a good price because of no competitive tension there? Uh, we've, You're happy? We're, we're happy with the price. Okay. Um, I, I think we're in the right spot. What's the word? We're unhappy with the price. Posco's unhappy with the price. So I know we've ended okay. up in the right spot. Right, okay. Um, so you know, bringing in a balance sheet like Posco means we can get a contract. We get a contract, we get debt. If I get debt... I don't have to dilute the registry. So that was a strategy, a decision we made four years ago about how we're going to tackle this space. Now, that pre-qualification is not a simple thing to do. There was a 90-tonne pilot plant back in, in 2018, 2019. Yeah. We produced concentrate, we took to China. The Chinese didn't believe the quality of the concentrate, not possible. We took a container load across to China. We ran a 20-tonne pilot plant in China and we basically gave away show bags of concentrate on that to prove we could make it. Mm -hmm. And then as we matured the relationship with POSCO, we then milled 500 tonnes of ore to produce about 40 tonnes of concentrate and a semi-trailer went to POSCO. Okay. We okay. ran it through a commercial facility to validate how it would perform in both a commercial facility and then how it would perform downstream in EVs. 
Okay, interesting. So where, where does that leave you today? So the question is, is still there, is what's the time on getting the finance for the, the, the CapEx and, and obviously OpEx requirements? Okay, so we're completing the contracts now with POSCA. Yeah. Um, we're also putting together um, MOUs, offtake agreements for large flake with some of the more traditional Western users. Right. And we have one third of our product going into China. Now, you know, people will talk about, you know, the China supply risk, and I think we can all understand it. You know, contracts in China are concepts, um, yeah. and how much of a risk does that mean? About one third of it, see, the feedback from the banking syndicates is they're happy with that. Um, but certainly, you know, there's massive demand in in China for our product, and ultimately, China is still the factory of the world, yeah. and they make things, and graphite goes into things that are made. So, you know, it's a supply chain that will go in there for quite some time. So just to appease the people who maybe have concerns over that, what, what controls do you have in terms of right, China, your late payments and stuff like that? 30 days, 60 days, 90 days becomes 365 right. yeah, days. No, it's, it's, letter of, it's letter of credit in right. the bank before the ship leaves. Got Thank it. you very much. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. And um, in terms of, you know, some of the kind of West Western potential buyers, potential partners, you know, you talked about your construct uh, for that earlier. Um, are you in discussions? Are you keeping the door open on those discussions for modules one, or two, three, and well, four? This is, again, the advantage of the modular strategy, yeah. modular one. Yeah, just about sold out now. Um, module two, um, we're getting inbound inquiries. Mm. Um, and then these are sort of brands that, you know, you would have died for 12 months ago. Mm. But, you know, we're now dealing multiple inbound inquiries. And it's not only inbound inquiries from corporates. Yeah. It's inbound inquiries from government agencies saying, you know, we have a oh, security right. supply issue. Got it. Uh, how can we facilitate this? And it's kind of exciting. That is, um, yeah. It is. It's interesting, and this whole thing comes back to a simple, uh, there's, there's a common rule across all of those government inquiries, and that is you need to have, you know, four green ticks in the ESG box. Right. But, um, you know, working through that, that's a condition of bank debt anyway. Yeah. So, again, you can sort of see the multiple layers of, of why we've gone down pre-qualification, get a contract, do it right, get bank debt, yeah. suddenly that opens up a whole plethora of opportunity. So ESG is a real thing as far as the, whether it be export credit agencies or other funders. It's, it's not just a tech box <coughs> exercise. It's a real thing. We've taken ESG. This is a, an interesting approach about how to think about ESG. Again, like I've been in the mining industry now for 40 years. Yeah. Um, and I think of ESG as being a safety case but looking outside. The safety case is you look inside into your operations mm -hmm. and say, what risks can I minimise? Because mm -hmm. risks equal economic loss. So that way, safety is good for shareholder value. We know a safe mine is a profitable mine. The ESG is a safety case looking outwards. You turn around and say, what are the externalities of my operation? Is my operation a net benefit or a net detractor? Um, so if I think about the bones of our ESG footprint in Tanzania, you know, we are looking to, to run the mine off grid power. Grid power in Tanzania is 70% hydro, 30% gas. Mm -hmm. So massive tick. Yeah. From an economic point of view, it's $0.08 cents a unit versus $0.32 cents a unit yeah. if I'm running off diesel. Yeah. I'm using dry stacking. I'm using dry stacking for a couple of very good technical reasons, but it means... 85% of my water is reclaimed going back to the mine. I'm not in competition 
with the subsistence agriculture yeah. area. So again, I am being a good neighbour to the subsistence agriculture in the area. I think also about the low strip ratio approach that we've developed on the mine and taking a whole of all body approach. Again, I don't have massive spoil piles that are going to detract right. And, right. and simplifies mine reclamation going forward. So it's about actually building ESG and how you address the macro issues of ESG into the footprint, into your mine. And then there's the second layer, the governance aspect about where you work in with the equator principles. And again, we've done a yeah, reasonable job there. We've had the independent technical experts come through. And yes, there's a bit of catch up in one or two areas, um, as you would always expect. But uh, fundamentally, we've done a pretty good job in that space. So expected timing on when this phase one module starts being built. We probably have a couple of months to go yet um, to finalise our debt. Um, we have 30 million cash in the bank now, so it gives us an opportunity to get going in some of the early works program, mm -hmm. roads, etc. And um, there's some discussions at board level that will be occurring in the next week or two about how we might go about doing that. Um, I think, you know, we'd really want to have line of sight on the debt to equity uh, puzzle towards yeah. the end of Q3 um, and, you know, understanding um, when we can draw that debt sometime in Q4. We're still thinking of a view that on the timeline we're looking at module one will be getting wet at the end of next calendar year. It's, it's yeah, I wouldn't have thought that I'd say this 20 years ago, but it's only a million tonne a year. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's a reasonably modest mine, and you know the modular approach means a simple construction period. Yep. Well, 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 how long? About fifteen months to build. Fifteen, eighteen months. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Not that's bad. pretty useful. You know, yeah. the, we did that because we wanted a short, sharp execution because it means it's it's simple from yeah. an execution point of view. But interesting in an inflationary environment Absolutely. we're dealing with now. A short duration means the opportunity of a inflation-driven cost blowouts minimised. Well, exactly. I think a lot of companies are going through this. Certainly, if it's done economic studies, there's so earlier in the year they're slightly regretting it. You know, peak inflation it seemed, yeah. but um, I guess the chance of being affected by inflation is, is and supply chain issues. Um, if it's a small project, is less. The impact is well, less. The economics of our project. If you go back and you look at the high-level economics back in 2019. Um, we looked at it, the project costing 116 million US dollars, mm -hmm. and if you you turn around, and you look at a basket price of 100 uh, of 1100 $1, dollars a ton, um, and that we can mark to market that basket price today, cash yeah. cost of about 400 dollars a ton. We're bringing in three dollars of revenue for every dollar of cost. You don't often get a business that does that, um, and and you know that. That's a pretty remarkable business. And an NPV 10 after tax, after free carried interest is about 1.5 billion US yeah, dollars. Yeah, no, the, number, the, numbers, the numbers are vast. And I, and I love the fact you're using NPV 10. I'm doing an NPV 5 just to make it look a little bit better. But yeah, that, that's why I asked you earlier about you know, the sustainability of, of the pricing. It sounds like the market is that pricing is sustainable and you've got your offtake partner in place. Yeah. So what we've done is again this 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 pricing piece has been opaque yeah and it's been one of the one of the big challenges in this is it's been easy to get on a on a on a stool and and proclaim yeah. i've got yeah. super jumbo that does all these things yeah um 
We've spent a lot of time working with Chinese markets and we have our own internal pricing now and every, you'll see every quarterly and every price deck we put out, every mm. investor deck we put out, we now have our pricing pages on that. Okay, good. And, and we synthesise three internal Chinese markets. So we, we look at what's called refractory windows, which is a Shandong-based index. And Shandong's important because that's where the steel industry is and it's also where um, the processing industry is. So that gives us kind of an insight as to what Chinese export would look like. Mm. We've got Helenjiang, which is where Lu Bai is, and that's 900-pound panda in the production. Mm. And then ICC Sino, which is in um, Inner Mongolia, and that tells us roughly what we think the large flake price would be. And we produce a blamange of those. And, mm. you know, our, our basket price that we talk about in our economics, we can mark that to market back to what we're seeing as Chinese transacted prices. And that's pretty important because while we would all like to say that um, because of the security supply issue, therefore the West will be prepared to pay more. Mm. Um, you know, the reality is consumer behaviour is they'll always buy the cheapest. So if you can't have a mine that survives on yeah. a Chinese pricing index, you've probably got a bigger problem. Yeah, marginal projects, I think, well, the tide's gone out, let's put it that way, for some of these marginal projects. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're looking at 2024 production 2024 revenue on module one is that right early 20s late 23 early late 23 okay yeah i think we'll, we'll get it wet in 23 it'll certainly see cash flow in 24 great okay well john great introduction to your story really enjoyed that and learned a thing or two that's always useful uh, <laughs> um stay in touch let us know how you get on with with things as they progress this year be intrigued to see how you get on okay thank you